Welcome once again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation of Church History Study with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here is Dr. Bartholomew. Hi, folks. We're going to study the life of Wilford Woodruff today. Um, I'm so excited for it because my picture is a show, and that's even better. So we're going to see it the way it really came, the way it really happened. On your mark, it's set, go. I'd like to remind you to, to listen to Golden Gems Radio and uh, pay attention to what's happening there. We have some great programs for you folks out there. Also, uh, we have some other things Kevin will talk about later today. Uh, on your mark, it's set, go. An Era of Reconciliation The administration of Wilford Woodruff begins 80 years old when he took over leadership of the church. Fearful of being arrested again, he missed John Taylor's funeral. He did attend conference, but left before the opening song. Met with the Twelve in private and began leading the church. Disagreeing Apostles As the Apostles met together, Wilford noticed discord beginning to arise in their meetings. Several new Apostles have been called to the Quorum since Brigham Young's death a decade earlier, including Moses Thatcher, Francis Lyman, Heber Grant, and John W. Taylor. Now each of them seem to have serious misgivings about George Q. Cannon. Believe that or not, yeah. They believed he had made many poor decisions as a businessman, politician, and church leader. Among their concerns was George's recent handling of a church discipline case involving his son, a prominent church leader who had committed adultery. They also did not like that George had made decisions on his own for the church during John Taylor's final illness. They also, nor did they like that George was advising Wilford on church business, even though the first presidency had been dissolved and George had returned to his place among the twelve. In the minds of the junior apostles, George was acting out of self-interest and excluding them from the decision-making process. George believed he had been misjudged, however. He admitted to making small mistakes from time to time, but the accusations against him were false or based on incomplete information. Wilford understood the immense pressures George had faced over the last few years, and he continued to express trust in him and depend on his wisdom and experience. Of all men under heaven, he said, we should be united. He then listened for hours as the younger apostles again aired their grievances. When they finished, Wilford spoke about Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and John Taylor, each of whom he had known and worked with closely. As great as these men were, he had seen imperfection in them. But they would not have to answer to him, Wilford said. We should treat Brother Cannon with consideration, Wilford said. He has his failings. If he did not, he would not be with us. 
If I have hurt any of your feelings, George added, I humbly ask your pardon. The meeting ended after midnight with the opening prayer of General Conference only hours away. Despite George's plea for forgiveness, Moses Thatcher and Heber Grant still believed that he had not adequately answered for his mistakes, and they told the brethren they did not yet feel reconciled. A new Relief Society president. The following April, the Saints sustained Eliza R. Snow's friend, Zina Young, as the new general president of the Relief Society. Like Eliza, Zina had been a plural wife of both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. When Eliza became general president of the Relief Society in 1880, she had chosen Zina as her counselor. Over the years, the two women had worked, traveled, and grown old together. Zina was known for her loving, personal ministering, and powerful spiritual gifts. For years, she had presided over the Deseret Silk Association, one of the Relief Society's cooperative programs. She was also an experienced midwife who served as the vice president of the Deseret Hospital, a hospital the Relief Society operated in Salt Lake City. Though she accepted her new calling with some trepidation, she was determined to help the Relief Society thrive as it had under Eliza. Wilford Woodruff and George Q. Cannon arrived at the Manti Temple in the middle of the night on May 15, 1888. They had left Salt Lake City a few days earlier, traveling after sundown to avoid marshals. The last leg of their trip was a 40-mile carriage ride through treacherous canyon terrain. Navigating in darkness, the driver had twice run the carriage off the road, nearly sending the apostles crashing down the mountain. Wilford had come to San Pete Valley to dedicate the third temple in Utah. Since appearing at public events would endanger George and other church leaders, Wilford had decided to dedicate the temple in a small private ceremony. I want you to think for a minute how different the church is today than when it was then. The brethren had to hide for their lives. And it was so sad to, to be in a situation like that. We've really grown and changed a lot over the years. It's just tremendous. I think a lot of people, you know, taking a step back with all the in-home meetings, etc. But <clears throat> the church continues to grow. And we are, we have, the brethren, none of them are in hiding like they were then. Later, the saints would hold a public dedication without him for those who had a special recommend from their bishop or stake president. The beauty of the new temple was breathtaking. Constructed with cream-colored limestone from the nearby mountains, it rose atop a hill overlooking a sea of wheat fields. Beautiful. Delicately carved trimmings and colorful murals adorned the temple's interior, and two magnificent spiral staircases stood as if suspended in air without a single pillar for support. I think the important thing to note here is 
The brethren continued the church growing and building temples, etc., despite the fact that their personal safety was at risk. And that's truly a evidence that they really were prophets. Completing the temple was a bright spot in an otherwise difficult time for Wilford. Very difficult. This unity within the Quorum of the Twelve continued to threaten their ability to lead the church effectively. Eight months had passed since John Taylor's death, and some junior apostles were still finding fault with George Q. Cannon. Wilford was ready to organize the first presidency, but he could not do so as long as the Quorum was out of harmony. Now this is a look at the Quorum of the Twelve that we don't normally get but it's what happened back then, and it's important. We can learn a great lesson from it. The apostles had made some progress in healing the rift in their quorum. During one meeting, he reminded the quorum that they must be guided by humility and love. He meekly confessed his own wrongdoing in speaking too sharply at times, prompting each apostle to confess his sins and ask the others for forgiveness. Afterward, though, a few members of the quorum still remained unwilling to support the formation of a new First Presidency. How difficult. The Edmonds-Tucker Act began to be enforced the day after John Taylor's funeral. The church was immediately sued for $3 million in property and tithing funds. The Supreme Court appointed Frank H. Dyer U.S. Marshal as receiver of properties and cash. An end nears to political and economic oppression. In efforts to destroy the church as a political and economic entity, the buildings on Temple Square and other church offices were placed in receivership and became the property of the U.S. government. In an effort to comply, church authorities voluntarily surrendered the structures on Temple Block, the General Tithing Office, the Office of the President, and other buildings along with the church farm of Salt Lake City. All the assets of the Perpetual Immigration Fund were also seized. Most of the buildings were then rented back to the church, but cash assets were never recovered. Meanwhile, in the Supreme Court case, U.S. v. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, church leaders were forced to testify regarding hidden or secretly sold buildings and other assets. Sensing they might lose the case against the church, the court demanded title deeds to the coal mine at Colesville, Deseret News, Deseret Telegraph Company, and a laundry list of other holdings, cash amounting to $239,266.15 was also surrendered. That's equivalent to $6,347,806.52 in today's money. Total value of items confiscated during the raid, $807,000. $666, $21,427,634.03 in today's money. 
This is a description of some of the property that was taken by the government. The town block, the tithing yard offices, the historian's office, the Gardo House, the office of the president of the church, the office of the presiding bishop, the church farm in Salt Lake, Note for aggregated amount of values settled by order of Supreme Court. Coal interest in Grass Creek near Colville. No promising delivery of cattle. 30,000 head of sheep. Stock in the Desert Telegraph Company. Stock in the Salt Lake Gas Company. Dividends received from the Gas Company stock. Notes from the Salt Lake Dramatic Company stock. And payments and satisfaction of the receiver's claim to capital stock in the Desert News Company. That's where all the properties that they took from the church. George Q. Cannon. In the fall of 1888, George Q. Cannon decided that it was in his and the church's best interest for him to go to prison. In the months before John Taylor's death, the Lord had revealed that George needed to go back into hiding with a prophet to help manage the church. Now that John had passed away and the leadership of the church was in the hands of the twelve, George no longer had a duty to stay hidden. I hope you can see that he's pitched there to the left, right in the center, George Cannon with his prison suit on at the Utah State Prison. On September 17th, he pleaded guilty to two counts of unlawful cohabitation, aware that he might have to spend nearly a year in jail. The Chief Justice, who was rumored to be more moderate in his dealings with the Saints, and previous judges gave him the relatively short sentence of 175 days behind bars. George wanted to begin his jail term as soon as possible, so on the same day as his sentencing, he was transported to the Utah Territorial Penitentiary. This is almost unbelievable for us to think about today. There was the trial being incarcerated, but they were back then. It's terrible. After a short time in prison, George organized a Bible class. Over 60 men attended the first Sunday meeting, including several who were not Latter-day Saints. The prisoners read and discussed the first five chapters of Matthew. A most delightful spirit prevailed, George wrote in his journal. Week followed week, and George found his time in prison to be happier than he had expected. During visiting days, he conducted church business and met with other apostles, including Heber Grant, whose heart was beginning to soften toward him. He also received visits from friends and family, and he spent much time counseling fellow inmates. My cell has seemed a heavenly place, George wrote in his journal. I feel that angels have been there. It's wonderful. Throughout the winter of 1888 to 1889, the Quorum of the Twelve still could not come to an agreement over the formation of a new First Presidency. Federal Marshals, meanwhile, continued to apprehend church leaders. Oh my gosh, it's terrible. It's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. In December, Apostle Francis Lyman surrendered to authorities, joining joining George Q. Cannon in prison. It's terrible. As president of the Twelve, Wilford Woodruff was forced to lead the church with fewer and fewer apostles by his side. The Relief Society, 
Zani Young felt the full weight of her new responsibility as the general president of the Relief Society. She now stood at the head of more than 22,000 women in hundreds of wards and branches across the world. In addition to serving as a spiritual leader, she oversaw several institutions, such as the Deseret Hospital and multiple assets, including over 32,000 bushels of grain in storage. Emmeline Wells willingly agreed to help Zina with her new responsibilities. Both Zina and Emmeline felt strongly about women having the right to vote, a right the Edmunds-Tucker Act had taken from them. In the winter of 1889, Zina and Emmeline met with Wilford Woodruff and other church leaders to discuss forming a women's suffrage association for Utah. Wilford and other members of the Quorum of the Twelve gave their full support. Soon, women's suffrage meetings began to follow regular Relief Society meetings in wards all around Utah and Idaho. Emmeline often published reports of these meetings in the Women's Exponent. Zina, meanwhile, called on the United States government to return the God-given right of suffrage to Utah's women. By and with it we will be enabled to do vast good to the world, she said. She also declared her commitment to working with women outside the church. We expect to reach out our hands to the women of America, she said, and say we are one with you in this grand struggle. As the Relief Society grew, Zina worried that individual stakes were becoming disconnected from general Relief Society leaders and from one another. Her solution was to invite Relief Societies from outlying stakes to Salt Lake City for a conference. The first General Relief Society conference was scheduled for April 6, 1889 to coincide with General Conference. Zina encouraged the diverse congregation to visit each other's meetings and become acquainted with one another. It will tend to union and harmony, promote confidence and strengthen the cords that bind us together, she promised, for there is more difference in our manner of speech than in the motives of our hearts. So true. <clears throat> Wilford Woodruff continues to seek unity amongst the twelve. On the first Friday, on the first Friday in April 1889, Wilford Woodruff called the apostles together. Nearly two years had passed since John Taylor's death, and Wilford had waited patiently for the quorum to find unity. He had led, as the revelations instructed, gently and meekly, with long-suffering and love unfeigned. Now, the day before the April General Conference was to begin, he felt the time had come to reorganize the First Presidency. Can you imagine the Quorum of the Twelve being in disunity for two years, not postponing the organization of the, Twelve of the First Presidency? Over the preceding months, a growing consensus had developed among the apostles that forming a First Presidency was in the best interest of the Church, and that Wilford was the Lord's choice to lead them, no matter whom he chose as his counselors. 
Wilford had even written to Francis Lyman in prison and received his, his support. The apostles now unanimously agreed to form a new first presidency. Wilford then nominated George Q. Cannon as his first counselor and Joseph F. Smith as his second. I can only accept this nomination by knowing that it is the will of the Lord, George said, and that it is with the hearty and full approval of my brethren. I have prayed over this matter, Wilford assured him, and I know that it is the mind and will of the Lord. Despite lingering questions about George, Moses Thatcher voted in favor. When I vote for him, I shall do, I shall do so freely and will try and sustain him with all my might, he said. Heber Grant also voiced his support for President Woodruff's choice with only minor reservations. On Sunday, thousands of saints filed into the tabernacle for the afternoon session of General Conference. At this solemn assembly, church members had the opportunity to sustain their new First Presidency. When the names of Wilford and his counselors were read, a sea of hands went up in support. In late November, Wilford met with lawyers who advised church leaders to supply the court with more information about the temple. They also recommended that he make an official announcement that no more plural marriages would be solemnized by the church. Wilford was unsure how to respond to the lawyer's requests. Were such actions truly necessary just to pacify the enemies of the church? He needed time to seek God's will. Night had fallen by the time the lawyers left Wilford alone. For hours he pondered and prayed for guidance on what to do. He and the saints had come to the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, seeking another chance to establish Zion and gather God's children to the peace and safety of its borders. Oh, oops. Now more than 40 years later, opponents of the church were tearing families apart, stripping women and men of their voting rights, creating obstacles for immigration and the gathering, and denying the rights of citizenship to people for simply belonging to the church. Before long, the saints could lose even more, including the temples. What would happen then to the salvation and exaltation of God's children on both sides of the veil? As Wilford prayed, the Lord answered him, I, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, am in your midst, he said. All that I have revealed and promised and decreed concerning the generation in which you live shall come to pass, and no power shall stay my hand. The Savior did not tell Wilford exactly what to do, but he promised that all would be well if the saints followed the Spirit. Have faith in God, the Savior said. He will not forsake you. 
I, the Lord, will deliver my saints from the dominion of the wicked in mine own due time and way. Jane Manning James. Let's stop for a second. This period in church history was a very difficult period. He's battling with the Twelve, who would take two years to come to a consensus that does sustain the new First Presidency. He's fighting the battle of plural marriage, trying to get it ended. Jane Manning James is going to be yet another problem. Wilford Rudolph was willing to do anything for the Lord and anything for his church to make it work. That's a great example to all of us, I think. Uh, it's hard to do things the hard way, but sometimes we just have to do it. And I really admire him for that. Jane Manning James wrote to Joseph F. Smith seeking clarity of her own. Jane was more than 60 years old now, and she worried about what the next life had in store for her. Most saints in Utah had received temple ordinances that sealed them to loved ones in this life and the next. But Jane understood that she, as a black Latter-day Saint, was not permitted to participate in these higher ordinances. Even so, Jane knew that God had promised to bless all nations of the earth to Abraham. Surely, she thought, that promise applied to her as well. Adding to Jane's anxiety about the next life was the present state of her family. She and her husband Isaac had divorced in the spring of 1870. Around 1874, she had married Frank Perkins, another black Latter-day Saint, but their marriage did not last. During these years, she had lost three children and several grandchildren to illnesses. Though four of her children were still alive, none of them were as devoted to the church as she was. Would they, would they be with her in the next life? If not, was there a place and a family for her there? As a young woman, Jane had lived and worked in the home of Joseph and Emma Smith in Nauvoo. During that time, Emma had invited her to be adopted as a daughter to her and Joseph, but Jane had never given her a direct answer before Joseph's death. Now, however, Jane understood that saints could be adopted into families through a special sealing in the temple. She believed that Emma had been inviting her to join their family in this way. In early 1883, Jane had visited President John Taylor to seek permission to receive her endowment. President Taylor discussed the matter with her, but he did not think the time had yet arrived for black saints to receive the higher ordinances of the oh. temple. He had reviewed the issue several years earlier when another black saint, Elijah Abel, asked to receive his temple ordinances. Though his investigation confirmed that Elijah had received the Melchizedek priesthood in the 1830s, President Taylor and other church leaders nevertheless decided to refuse Elijah's request on the basis of his race. Oh, yuck. Nearly two years after speaking with President Taylor, Jane had entreated him again. I realize my race and color 
and can't expect my endowments, she stated at that time. Yet she noted that God had promised to bless all of Abraham's seed. As this is the fullness of all dispensation, she asked, is there no blessing for me? You know my history, she continued. According to the best of my ability, I have lived to all the requirements of the gospel. She then recounted Emma's invitation to her and expressed her own desire to be adopted into Joseph Smith's family. If I could be adopted to him as a child, she noted, my soul would be satisfied. Soon after Jane sent her letter, President Tater had left Salt Lake City to visit the southern settlements in Mexico, and he did not respond to her before his death. Four years later, Jane Stake President issued her a recommend to perform baptisms for the dead in the temple. You must be content with this privilege, awaiting further instructions from the Lord to his servants, he wrote. A short time later, Jane traveled to the Logan Temple and received baptism for her mother, grandmother, daughter, and other kindred dead. Now in her letter to Joseph F. Smith, Jane again requested a chance to receive temple ordinances, including an adoption into the Smith family. Can that be accomplished and when? she asked. Jane received no reply to her letter, so she wrote again in April. Again, she received no reply. Jane continued to have faith in the restored gospel and the prophets, praying that she might receive salvation in the Lord's kingdom. I know that this is the work of God, she had once told her Release Society. I have never seen a time when I felt like backing out. She also trusted in the promises she had recently received in a patriarchal blessing from John Smith, Joseph F. Smith's older brother. Hold sacred thy covenants, for the Lord has heard thy petitions, the blessing assured her. His hand has been over thee for good, and thou shalt verily receive thy reward. Thou shalt complete thy mission, and receive thine inheritance among the saints, it promised and thy name shall be handed down to posterity in honorable remembrance. Um, imagine if you were uh, Sister Manning and how difficult that would have been. Now, I hate to be personal, but my family made the book. Um, that's pretty weird, huh? But they did. <laughs> and uh, we're going to see a little bit of it here today. Come on. Okay, there you go. Lorena Larson, my third great-grandmother. 29-year-old Lorena Larson was pregnant with her fourth child. Her husband, Bent, had recently finished serving a six-month prison sentence for unlawful cohabitation. Since Lorena was a plural wife, her pregnancy could be used as evidence that Bent had violated the law again. To keep her family safe, she decided to go on the underground. Lorena and Bent next decided to rent a home for her and her children in the town of Redmond, 
halfway between Monroe and Manti. Since informers were everywhere, Lorena had to keep her identity secret. Her name was now Hannah Thompson, she told her children, and if their father came to visit, they were to call him Uncle Thompson. Again and again, Lorena stressed the importance of not revealing their true names. Pregnant and alone, she, tr she struggled every day to take care of three children in a strange town. Then one night, Lorena had a dream. She saw her lawn in Monroe covered in wild bushes and vines. Immediately went to work digging out weeds in the yard. As she began pulling at deep roots, Lorena suddenly found herself beside a beautiful tree, heavy with the finest fruit she had ever seen. She heard a voice say, the underground tree brings forth every choice fruit, too. In the dream, Lorena was soon surrounded by her loved ones. Her children, now fully grown, came to her, bearing dishes, bowls, and small baskets. Together, they filled the bowls with the delicious fruit and passed them among the crowd, some of whom Lorena perceived to be her descendants. Lorena's heart rejoiced, and she awoke full of gratitude. An end, year, an end nears to political and economic oppression. Church leaders succeeded in getting their case before the United States Supreme Court, arguing that the confiscation of church property under the Edmunds-Tucker Act was unconstitutional. But in May 1890, the court upheld in a five-to-four decision. Uh. In addition to economic sanctions, political oppression was also enforced. In Utah, anyone convicted of polygamy or unwilling to take an oath against it could not vote. In Idaho, any citizen unwilling to take an oath denouncing the church was not permitted to vote. This case went to the Supreme Court and ruled unconstitutional. No, it was ruled constitutional. Or, or ruled constitutional. The Cullum-Strubble Act bill was introduced and almost guaranteed passage, which would strip all members of the church citizens' rights. After two disappointing losses in the Supreme Court, the church suffered political losses locally as well. With many of the saints unable to vote, the Utah Liberal Party first won the elections in Ogden and then in Salt Lake City. The non-members were helped by the decision of a United States judge that no Latter-day Saint immigrants were worthy of becoming U.S. citizens or of having the right to vote. In addition, private individuals profited from the confiscation of church property which led to Dyer's resignation. Finally, Wilford Woodruff was sustained as president of the church two years after the death of John Taylor. The Manifesto. By July of 1890, all the schools were secularized and controlled by the government. The liberals had won almost all the seats in Weber 
and Salt Lake counties. The Supreme Court ruled that children from polygamous marriages could not inherit their father's estate. Even though the government had agreed they would not confiscate temples, by August of 1890, President Woodruff received word that the U.S. government had decided that they would confiscate them anyway. Hey, like that. President Woodruff, learning that he and his counselors were to be subpoenaed to testify in court regarding plural marriage, went to California to avoid confrontation. Consoling with political advocates, they realized many were willing to help the LDS cause, but could do nothing about the polygamy issue. To better ascertain the condition of the saints, in a journey of 2,400 miles, he visited all of the Mormon colonies in Wyoming, Colorado, Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico. <laughs> Having gathered all the information he could on the problems before the saints, he felt he was prepared to make a decision. On September 22nd, on September 22nd, Wilford met with his counselors in the Gardo House, the official residence of the church president in Salt Lake City, to discuss what to do about the report. George Q. Cannon proposed issuing a denial of its claims. Perhaps no better chance has been offered to us, he said, to officially, as leaders of the church, make public our views concerning the doctrine and the law that has been enacted. Later, after the day's meetings, Wilford prayed for guidance. If the church did not stop performing plural marriages, the government would keep passing laws against the saints, a vast majority of whom did not even practice the principle. Chaos and confusion would reign in Zion. More, when would, more men would go to jail, and the government would confiscate the temples. The saints had performed hundreds of thousands of ordinance for the ordinances for the dead since the dedication of the new temples. If the government seized these buildings, how many of God's children living and dead would be barred from the sacred ordinances of the gospel? Surely, my friends, you can see this is a tough time to be a member of the church, especially a tough time to be the president of the church. So much pressure from the government, so much pressure from the saints. What's he going to do? The next day, Wilford told George that he believed it was his duty as the president of the church to issue a manifesto or public statement to the press. He then had a secretary join him in a private room while George waited outside. Apostle Franklin Richards, meanwhile, arrived at the Gardo house looking for the prophet. George told him that Wilford was busy and could not be disturbed. A short time later, Wilford emerged from the private room with a statement he had just dictated. His agitation over the Utah Commission's report was gone. Now his face seemed to shine, and he looked pleased and contented. Wilford had the document read out loud. The statement denied that new plural marriages had taken place during the past year and affirmed the church's willingness to work with the government. 
Inasmuch as the nation has passed a law forbidding plural marriages, it declared, we feel to obey that law and leave the event in the hands of God. The next day, the First Presidency asked three talented writers, Secretary George Reynolds, newspaper editor Charles Penrose, and presiding bishopric counselor John Winder, to refine the language of the statement and prepare it for publication. Once revised, the manifesto, as it came to be called, declared an end of future plural marriages and emphasized Wilford's resolve to obey the laws of the land and persuade the saints to do the same. <coughs> we are not teaching polygamy or plural marriage, nor permitting any person to enter into its practice, it read in part. I hereby declare my intention to submit to those laws and to use my influence with the members of the church over which I preside to have them do likewise. President Woodruff said later that the Lord had shown him by revelation exactly, exactly what would take place if plural marriage did not cease. He was shown that the church would suffer the confiscation and loss of all the temples and the stopping of all the ordinances therein, both for the living and the dead, and the imprisonment of the First Presidency and Twelve, and the heads of families in the church, and the confiscation of personal property of the people. Sorry. He testified to the brethren that he knew it was the Lord's will and the right thing to do. The brethren accepted it, and it was prepared for publication in the nation's leading newspapers the next day. U.S. government officials reported back to the brethren that they would not recognize the manifesto unless it was formally ratified by the members of the church and general conference. Wow. Presented at three-day general conference and accepted unanimously by saints. President George Q. Cannon explained the difficulty in convincing the Supreme Court that the LDS Church's practice should have been honored by the Constitution. President Woodruff bore testimony that U.S. government would be held accountable for the discontinuance of the principle, and no man will ever lead the Church astray as the prophet and God would as the prophet, and God would remove him if he tried. I am convinced that God was with President Woodruff when he was preparing the manifesto for publication, Franklin Richards added. When the manifesto was read, I felt it was the right thing and that it had been given at the right time. The manifesto still unsettled John W. Taylor, who had been called to the Quorum of the Twelve shortly after Heber. After the death of his father, President John Taylor, John W. had found a purported revelation about marriage among the prophet's papers. The revelation, dated September 27, 1886, seemed to suggest to John W. that the commandment to practice plural marriage would never be revoked. Although the revelation had never been presented to the Quorum of the Twelve or accepted as scripture by the saints, John W. believed 
that it was the word of God to his father. Yet he knew revelation was continuing and ongoing, addressing new situations and problems as they arose. And John, and John W. had faith that God had spoken to Wilford as well. I know that the Lord has given this manifesto to President Woodruff, he said, and he can take it away when the time comes, or he can give it again. Like John W. Taylor, John Henry Smith was still struggling to accept it. I am willing to sustain the president in issuing the manifesto, although I am a little at sea as to the wisdom of its having been issued, he said. My fears are that the manifesto will do us as a people more harm than good. The next day the apostles met with the first presidency and each man sustained the manifesto as the will of God. Afterward, some apostles expressed concern that critics of the church would be dissatisfied with the document and continue to prosecute men who did not separate from or divorce their plural wives. There is no telling what we might have to do in the future, Wilford said, but at the present time, I feel that we must be true to our wives. For Heber, the prospect of being forced to abandon his plural wives, Augusta and Emily, was unthinkable. I confess that it would be a great trial to me, he wrote that day in his journal. I feel that I could not endorse any such a thing. At general conference, Orson Pratt read the manifesto. Lorenzo Snow presented it to the saints for their sustaining vote. Hands went up throughout the auditorium, some decisively, some more reluctantly. Other hands did not go up at all. There did not appear to be any direct opposition, though many saints' eyes were wet with tears. So hard for them. The aftermath. This announcement by him as president of the church has caused an uneasy feeling among the people, recorded one man in St. George, and some think he has gone back on the revelation on plural marriage and its covenants and obligations. A few men in the town even used the testimony as an excuse to abandon their plural, family, their plural families. In private meetings, Wilford reiterated to the Twelve that any man who deserted or neglected his wives or children because of the manifesto was not worthy to be a member of the church. Wilford did not condemn men like Joseph F. Smith and George Q. Cannon, who continued to have children with their plural wives. But he also believed that men could obey the law and keep their covenants by living separately from their plural families while still providing for their well-being. Within his own family, Wilford lived with his wife Emma publicly, but he continued to support and care for his other wives, Sarah and Delight, and their children. When Wilford learned that some people were wondering if he was leading the church astray, he decided to speak further on the matter. At a state conference in Logan, he acknowledged that there were many saints who were struggling to accept the change. He asked a question, 
Was it wiser to continue performing plural marriages, regardless of the consequences, or to live according to the nation's laws, so that the saints could enjoy the blessings of the temple and stay out of prison? If we did not stop this practice, he said, all ordinances would be stopped throughout the land of Zion. Confusion would reign throughout Israel, and many men would be made prisoners. This trouble would have come upon the whole church, and we should have been compelled to stop the practice. But I want to say this, Wilford added, I should have let all the temples go out of our hands. I should have gone to prison myself and let every other man go there, had not the God of heaven commanded me to do what I did do. And when the hour came that I was commanded to do that, it was all clear to me. I went before the Lord, and I wrote what the Lord told me to write. Wow. How difficult could it be to be the president of the church there? Around this time, Lorena and Brent Larson decided to return to Utah after months of struggling to make a living in Colorado. The farmland in Sanford had not been producing well, and Bent found it almost impossible to obtain other work. He now planned to live with his first wife, Julia, and their extended family in Monroe, Utah, while Lorena and her children would live with her brother's family in a town about a hundred miles away. This was a very, very difficult time for members of the church. This time for, it was a difficult time for those who were practicing plural marriage. It was a difficult time for those who were not. It was a very difficult time for President Woodruff, who was the president of the church. I remember my testimony that they made it through this tough time. We have the blessings we have today because they were willing to be faithful and, and live through it. And I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for being with us today for another segment of Dr. Bartholomew's insightful review of aspects of church history. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to listen to www.goldengems.net, where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when music was music in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week for another episode in church history with Dr. Bartholomew.